This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and Grumpy Old Man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Ruben. How are you? How, how is the workshop going? Oh, it finished. It's uh, school's out for summer, you know? <laughs> uh, no, it was Fantastic. really It was really good. I love I love the haiku workshop. Um, I have a new workshop coming up, actually, at the end of March, okay. which is my, it's the first time I've ever run it. It's a composition workshop. It's called Composition, The Art of Composition Reimagined. Um, and I'm, you know, I, think it. I mean, I know you love discussing composition, so I, this will be exciting, but th this is like totally new then. It this is. is like I, yeah. I think I've been pretty vocal that I'm sort of unsatisfied with the way composition is taught. So this is giving me a yeah, chance to try uh, some new ideas. It's kind of a simplified version of the haiku stuff because haiku okay. is actually pretty complicated. And just, if you take the compositional parts of that, you can then shoot more still lives and landscapes and other stuff that wouldn't normally be haiku, but it's definitely what people are interested in shooting. And you can focus on the compositional parts of it. So I'm looking forward. I think it, it's a maybe even yeah easier to teach or take than the haiku class, which is pretty challenging, I think. Uh, what else? Uh, well, fantastic. So, and this is so the first one you're doing of this composition, or first of many, I'm sure. Yeah, but I this hope, is yeah. sort of the first. Um, so, you're looking for some more canaries in the coal mine, or yeah, you know, I, yeah, you really get to form a class by the first few groups of students who take it. And so, yeah. if you're into this kind of thing, um, I, you know, sign up because we'll really be forming what the, the what the real curriculum is as we go through the class. That's the Ruben way. We'll figure, we'll figure it out. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, isn't that the way of life? I mean, yes, you just, you yes. gotta, gotta take a step forward to figure it all out. Yes. Um, uh, what else? Oh, um, you're speaking, I know you're speaking at an event. Cause I am. I'm coming to the Bay area. Day. It's so fun to come to the Bay area. I have a photoclave 2024 is in San Ramon on the 17th and I'm super 17th excited. Of February. Of February, yeah. It's like in a couple weeks. Fantastic. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's good. A lot so. of photo fans. It's all the photo clubs and groups of the Bay Area kind of are gathering. Um, and I'm the I'm the opening act. You know, I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I saw the lineup after I said I would do it. I saw the lineup of keynotes and it's uh it's me and it's Fred, Fred Van Johnson, who <laughs> we've had on the show and so like yes. he's next then there's cool. franz lanting the, the yes. like national geographic world famous franz lanting and yeah. i think i saw him speak actually at eg oh yes yes and then finally he's scott kelby yes and scott kelby oh. who's like like one of the great educators of photography so like i'm <laughs> i'm amazing. opening i'm opening for these guys i feel like i'm opening for the stones and it's like my big <laughs> a star is born it's you my are. big break yeah Woo! yeah um Really what I wanted to like today, I'm very excited about because, well, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of things, but as you guys all know, on November 29th, um, the fantastic photographer, Elliot Erwitt passed away and, um, he was influential for, for me and for a lot of people. And, uh, it just seemed like, well, who could we talk to about this guy and his life and his photography? And there really is no one better than the fantastic photographer, Rick Smolin. So like, we don't do this very often, Rick, but Rick's mm -hmm. uh, like a two-timer on this show. So uh, very, I'm very excited. I don't know about two-timer. Two Maybe we'll come up with a better my, expression. My biography on my uh, tombstone. Two Rick Smolin, two-timer. Yeah, you're yeah. like, I don't want that hyphen it. Thanks okay. anyway. Yeah, no, okay. no, my wife okay. would be happy about that. <laughs> Repeat guest, back by popular demand. Um, and for those of you who um, don't feel like going back and listening to episode 86, that we did in uh, 2019. Um, I would Rick, say do it. Go well, back go, and listen. Go listen to that because really you should listen episode. to that. You get uh, to hear uh, all about Rick's stories. And I mean, honestly, I think we just started talking about the, the tracks, you know, like that how that movie was just coming out. And then I think it actually uh, has now come out more widely. So also watch tracks. Um, I'm a, I, I got I got to say. Adventure I, that Rick went on. Is the, cool, is the coolest thing about Rick that Adam – Driver no. played him in a movie. Like that's my almost kid, no. There's so many cool so. things. My kids think I, so. I think it's pretty. I think that's pretty good. Honestly. When uh, when when uh, my son was I think 17, 
he and his friends went to see Star Wars, and in the middle of Star Wars, my son yells out, "That's my father!" That's <laughs> hilarious, <laughs> Luke. <laughs> Luke, that's my father, my father too. <laughs> oh man! So, um, well, well, Rick, welcome back. And, yes, so Rick is a distinguished photographer. Um, books, Time, Life, National Geographic. You've you've shot for the best. Um, the day in the life books, everyone should know that series and be real familiar with it. And, um, you're currently CEO of against all odds productions and doing a lot of great work. Uh, and we can talk more about that at the end, but I, I just want to jump into Elliot Erwitt. Like I thought I was a super fan. I think you're the super <laughs> fan. <laughs> it's like, so t can you tell us a little bit about like how this guy entered your life and why him, you know? Um, yeah, I was um, painfully shy when I was a kid. I was one of those people that literally couldn't talk to other people. I would sit in the, I did ham radio. I would do Morse code because I wouldn't actually have to look, <laughs> look into the eyes of any other human being or even hear their voices. And uh, uh, my dad thought there was something wrong with me. He sent me to a shrink. Uh, and I always thought that everybody else in the world knew how to talk to each other and just had been left out of my toolkit. So I would just watch people all the time. And one day my dad gave me a book of this photographer, Elliot Erwitt. I don't know why he gave it to me. Uh, he said, you might find this interesting. And I'd never seen pictures like it before. I, you know, I looked at Life Magazine and, and you know, Look and National Geographic. But there was something about these pictures that it wasn't so much the subject matter as the perspective of the person taking the pictures. And there were these, it's, it, was, it was almost like, I didn't know what the New Yorker, what a New Yorker cartoon was when I was 14 or 15. But now that I look back, his pictures had that kind of gentle, whimsical humor, make, not making fun of people, but amused at humanity in general. He, he um, saw the funny stuff. He saw it. When you way. say funny, I think you always think of you know, cats hanging from a pole or one of these, you know, but... <laughs> It, it was a different. It was more subtle, almost like more European humor. We had to lift the picture twice, and then you got the joke. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was animals that were mimicking, like a bird, and it's the angle of its head was the same as a water pipe it was next to. And you think, okay, that's cute. But then when you see thirty pictures where these mimicking things are going on, and he's always seeing these really interesting juxtapositions. And human beings doing the strangest things, not realizing that what they're doing is really funny or strange or odd. Um, and so I, I just love these pictures. So I got a camera, started taking pictures. I found that um, the camera was like my rabbit's foot. You know, I could talk to girls for the first time. Um, I, had, <laughs> I had an excuse to walk over. And uh, Elliot's pictures were wonderful. And then there was a, an incredible book, which I recommend to everybody listening to this podcast, it's called, uh, there was a series called The Contemporary Masters of Photography. It was by Larry Schiller and Sean Callahan, who later created American Photo. And uh, you can get them for like literally one penny now on Amazon or eBay used. It's like $2 for shipping, whatever. But the Elliot Erwitt book is still, I buy it all the time for a penny. And I give it out to every young budding photographer, anybody interested in photography, because it it was, the book was so interesting because First of all, it 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 showed you his some of his greatest hits. That was great, but it also gave you his history, his wives, his his how he got started, the things that went wrong, how he ended up in the military, how he submitted his pictures to Life magazine and, and won this award. Um, and then there's a section in the in this. It, it was actually a hardcover, a book that later became sort of a magazine kind of book. Again, contemporary masters of photography, out the Elliot Urban experience. I think it's called. Um, it talked about his tech, his technique. It had a different kind of paper in the book for the different sections, which I'd never seen before. So the brown paper was like more of the technical stuff and the beautiful paper was the photographs and there's something else where it was his life story. It showed you contact sheets. And um, one of the things I remember reading that really struck me even before I was really a photographer uh, was that um, Elliot never said no to anything. A lot of photographers said, oh, that's beneath me. Uh, I'm not going to do that assignment because I'm an artist. And Elliot, first of all, never took himself seriously. He thought this whole artiste thing was a, a huge joke. Uh, he said, like, it's like a fish taking credit for for swimming in water. Like, you know, for him, <laughs> like, really, really. Uh, but I remember reading that, uh, first of all, no matter what the assignment was, as long as it took him out somewhere in the world, he would take the assignment. 
So lots of other photographers would say, that's no, beneath me. That would he said, I don't care. Once it gets me out somewhere, I'm gonna take my own pictures. And that's the other thing. He had two cameras. We well, had many cameras, but he, he had his professional cameras on one shoulder shooting color or whatever the job was, but he always had a Leica on his other shoulder. And he, he and because he didn't want to use the client's film to, to take personal pictures because, you know, he, he didn't want them to think. So, so, so he, he separated, he separ he had multiple cameras. One was a play camera. One was a work camera. Is well, he probably had, he probably had two or three work cameras. This mm -hmm. is why every, every, every photographer I know has back problems, mm -hmm. but uh, <laughs> I, I, used to, I, well, I had three or four cameras around my neck sometimes, depending, you know, one with a telephoto, it depends on what you're doing, but in any kind of moving, anything that, that where the, the scene was changing constantly, some, none of us liked zoom lenses back in the day. Zoom lenses were always considered to be, kind of uh, not as good, not as sharp. Now they're fantastic. But at the, back then, uh, if you were a real photographer, you had your 28, your 35, your 50, your 105, your 85, your 200. So we had these, you know, packs of wow. cameras. And sometimes you wanted a wide angle and a telephoto on your shoulder at the same time. So you could quickly just grab the camera that you needed. And also, um, you know, back then you couldn't just change the ISO, right? You couldn't change the the sensitivity. So you had one camera with Tri-X in it and one camera with Kodachrome in it and one with, you know, so anyway, but what I loved was this idea that Elliot always had his small little Leica on his left shoulder um, with a 35 millimeter lens. And so many of his classic pictures were taken while he was on assignment for some other, for the, you know, the oil company in Bahrain or something. And there'd be this picture of a dog and that would be the picture that, and so, you know, somewhere, mm -hmm. in, somewhere in his career, um, someone said, you know, you could actually sell prints of these things. Cause most of us, uh, I was in a photo agency called Contact with Andy Leibovitz, uh, Doug Kirkland, Eddie Adams into the street shooting in Saigon. Doug Kirkland did Marilyn Monroe wrapped in a sheet. I was the baby of the group. And I and in emulation of Elliot, I was the one that took all the assignments nobody else wanted. Uh -huh. And I didn't care. Just <laughs> get me out into the world when I get I, it was literally I completely replicated um um that, that whole idea of um uh, of you know taking my own pictures uh, for myself and just uh, and so many of the jobs that everybody turned out everybody else turned down led me to things that were interesting because I would enterprise. I'd find my own, <laughs> my own stories, my own projects when I was out there. So that's what I loved about Elliot is that he had a, um, he was self-deprecating, never took himself seriously, took amazing pictures, didn't even know they were amazing pictures. I mean, for him, it was just like, as I said, it was like breathing. And uh, every young photographer, I mean, now old photographer, every photographer I know um, who's worth their weight in, you know, Kodachrome film. Yeah. film uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> And your audience went, Kodachrome, what's that? It's Paul <laughs> Simon's song. Uh, 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 we Everybody I talked to says, oh, my God, you were Elliot Irwin, your son-in-law. Like, he was my inspiration. I mean, literally 90% of the photographers who do kind of journalistic art, I mean, sort of one foot in the journalistic world because that gets you out there. But I'm blathering on here. But someone said, you know, what, do you, what makes a great picture? And, and you know, everybody has a different definition, but I always feel like um, it's a scalable. It's like, imagine one is uh, Harry Callahan where it's all shadows and light and patterns and there's no subject matter. And then you've got Ouija, which is some guys dropped off a building and he's crashed on top of a car and he's shot a picture with a flash. So you have one is pure subject matter and one is pure mm -hmm. design. And what I love are the pictures right in the middle, the ones that have really interesting subject matter, but also have a sense of, design and depth and juxtaposition of things where everything comes together, you know, as uh, yeah. Gabriel Son, the famous photographer, who was one of uh, Elliot's friends and mentors, uh, talked about this decisive moment, like all these things are happening all around you. And somehow the world's greatest photographers can encapsulate an entire situation into one single frame, which is, it, it, it's so hard to do that. And so effortless for some of these men and women. Well, I love, love, love that phrase. I mean, the decisive moment, I think that's something that's come up a lot in conversations with Ruben and I and other guests on this show. I, I read a quote, um, Elliot Erwick quote, that he said, it's not the subject, it's how you treat the subject. And right. that really stuck with me. I love that idea of it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't about, it was never trying to like poke fun of someone. It was really in like, again, that perspective that, you know, that, that the photographer's taking and he'd continued, I want my pictures to communicate something. That is the only reason I take pictures is to communicate 
with someone. Um, I'm curious, what do you think in the, in he had multiple cameras around his neck in the, in the days of iPhones, obviously he was alive. He just passed away last November. Um, was he a fan of, of iPhones because you kind of have that sort of that, that ability to, you know, you, this is my pocket camera that I'm taking snapshots. Um, <clears throat> it's a good question. I think he was quite skeptical of the whole digital era. I mean, he used digital mm -hmm. cameras. Um, and I think as he got older, because because of both the you know, the, auto, the autofocus and uh, the exposure, everything became. I mean, back in the day when he was shooting, he he was, had a little light meter. We had to actually figure out what the light was, and set, everything was manual. Right. Uh, the idea of stopping every thirty six frames, also right now, is so astounding when you think about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I I've looked at a lot of his contact sheet. It's amazing how often. Um, the right frame was frame 36. Uh, you know, the last always, shot of the roll. I, I always, yeah, I always wonder That's interesting. Whether, whether photographers know when they've hit it. Cause a lot of times they're taking lots of pictures in a situation and it's so interesting to look at their contact sheets and some of them know, okay, I got it. And then that's the last frame, even if it's in the middle of the roll. Don't you feel don't you feel like when you've got a roll of film and this is so moot for any of our <laughs> listeners probably but when you have a roll of film and you know you, you you can see as you wind it what frame you're on and as you get closer and closer to 36 you shoot a little bit less <laughs> you're just in case and you hold that last frame you hold the last couple frames just in case something happens you're checking to see if you've got another roll on you or you got to make these last right so yeah, i suppose yeah. your your self-critic is amped up towards those last frames so maybe you're gonna yeah. get better ones in the last couple i don't it's know also I, you know i remember when you were when when I was a photographer and I would wander all over the world and a lot of times uh, I you know most of the time I ship my film back to New York or London or Paris or Tokyo to get processed so I I wouldn't even process it myself because I was on a deadline and you think first of all you buy this film in a store and was it refrigerated you know was was the film stopped okay because they were they were always you know they were defective batches and then um, was your camera functioning properly was the shutter correct right. Was there dust in your camera that scratched? They just put a scratch <laughs> in the middle of every single picture. Line, <laughs> right? No. And, and then, and then um, you ship it. You have to find someone to take. If you go to a courier, it takes three days to get back to New York. So we would all go out to the airport and try to find a friendly flight attendant. And we would say, uh, "I work for Time Magazine, International Geographic. Would you carry this barf bag full of Kodachrome <laughs> Triax?" back to New York. So there could have been cocaine in there. It could have been bomb. <laughs> I mean, it's, and, and no one ever said no. I Not once did I or any of my friends ever not find uh, a flight attendant. That, and, and we would say, you know, our, our taxi driver, Richie, we had this wonderful taxi driver named Richie, who basically be, became part of our photo agency. And Richie, can you go out to the airport? This blonde stewardess from Sweden on Pan Am flight 107. <laughs> um, she, you know, hold up a sign saying, you know, it's Jane. <laughs> And 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 so then it would, then the film would get to Time or Newsweek or whatever, and then you had a hope on a Monday when the chemicals were fresh, your film would get overdeveloped because the chemicals were too hot. On Friday the chemicals were old because they were, so so you wanted your film developed on a Wednesday. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and then you hope it didn't get X-rayed on the way back, right? Because you hope the stewardess or the flight attendant didn't let them actually put it through the machine because that. Oh my God! There were like, but now when I think of, so I don't ways. think anyone even many, appreciates what that was. All the hurdles. Yeah. And yeah. now you take the picture and you transmit it, and a second later it goes from Africa back to to New York City. It's just, you know, and we take all this so much for granted now. You know. Yeah. Yeah. World. Those. That's what what is happened. the quote? Yeah. That that which is achieved too easily is not valued. Yeah, um, no, I, I think that's right. I, I think there's a commoditization now of photography where. On the one hand, you think, well, everybody's a photographer. They would appreciate these wonderful images, but they're almost like yeah. there's so much of it now that no one really does appreciate it the way they used to. I, I mean, I couldn't wait for Life Magazine to come out every week. You know, it's like it's like it's like the Christmas yeah. some of the Christmas tree. Like, what's I would literally dream issues before they came. <laughs> out. Oh yeah, I also, yeah. I also dreamt Superman comics before they came out. Too. Okay, so and that um, didn't happen, you know. So 
I, I mean, I, getting back to the contact sheets, though, I think that there, there's something so interesting about that. I almost wish there was this like modern day kind of like version of it. I know that um, Elliot Erwood also felt like if you could see the contact sheets of a great photographer, you'd learn a great deal. And it, and I found myself as I was like looking through his work um, and preparing for this episode, I just felt like what a great editor, you know, like. I mean, it felt also because he's obviously, you know, he shot for years and there's so many different moments and things, but it just felt like, how do you pick that one? I mean, that decisive moment that you, you know, that you just mentioned as well, but what a great editor to be able to say, this is, this is the one. And um, it made me think of like how, I don't know how I edit or how, how other, how I see others editing because we don't really value when we see in someone's Instagram feed or whatever it is, like three versions that are kind of close. You're like, yeah, that actually devalued it. I don't, I, I would have preferred it if you just would have picked one. I wouldn't have known about all the work behind it, right, but right. I would value that choice. Mm. I, I would also, and I always have to throw this in because I have my own soapbox and stuff, but like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's what Cartier-Bresson was talking about with the decisive moment. It wasn't about the quintessence of that moment. It was about the uh, the compositional quintessence, the harmony of those things, which Erwitt was you know, you know, all those things coming together. All those the, things in the, the perfect gestalt. Every, yeah, everything, everything's it's in its yeah. place. Yeah. It's just such a, a, an amazing thing to be able to do that I don't, you know, now kids have burst mode. Like you can just miss the shot and somehow you can find a good but, composition. You know, Su Suzanne, you just said something really interesting, which is that um, I've been on both sides of the table. So I've been a photographer. I've also been an editor. I've been a publisher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually find a lot of photographers are terrible editors of their own stuff they're really good photographers but the pictures that they choose are the ones they went through the most trouble to take and sometimes <laughs> it's that random photograph that, that they don't yeah. well, you know it, they, it's a snapshot to them but we all look at it and go oh my god it's an amazing picture they don't see it and so um this is i, I was meeting with magnum yesterday and I, they do this wonderful square print sale twice a year where you can buy for a hundred dollars some of the most famous pictures ever taken by some of the best photographers in the world. And, and I was saying to them that um, you guys should not allow the photographers to edit their own pictures to, to decide what goes in. The <laughs> <laughs> because I know these photographers, I know their work and I do not want a picture of a dead body on the ground, even though you risked your life to take it. That, I mean, that's fine for a magazine, but for something I want to hang on the wall, I want Steve McCurry's Afghan girl, right? Or I want right. Elliot's yeah. the woman with the Empire State Building behind yes. it. <laughs> I don't want the picture that you're the most proud of because you almost got killed taking it because that's important to you. But as a, so uh, uh, to your point though, Suzanne, um, you know, some photographers like Elliot were actually very good at finding the right frame. Um, mm -hmm. He, uh, you know, he passed away at 95, as you said, in November uh, but uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, he really, his last book was called Found, Not Lost. And he went mm -hmm. through 70 years of contact sheets and found images, not B or C images, A images that he didn't even know he'd taken. So he went through every single roll of film he'd ever taken. And Amazing. found these, I mean, some of the pictures, like, how did you not see this on your contact sheet? He said, <laughs> you know, my my vision was there, my understanding was it. And he said, now at 90 years old, I'm I'm going back and finding little gems. And the entire book is like all pictures that no one had ever seen before. It was I would love book. to see that. So interesting. I mean, didn't he find the book um that uh, there's kind of that, that very famous picture of Santa Monica where it's like the couple kissing the rearview mirror? Didn't he find that picture like 20, 25 years later after he took it? It wasn't something yeah. that he shot initially. Yeah, and you know, the other thing funny about that picture is so many people have come claiming they're the couple in the picture. Wow, it's it's <laughs> and, like and wanting, to, and wanting to get paid. Of course, it's like the Duano oh, yes. in front of in in the yeah, yeah, in, in Paris, right? It's like everyone, everyone. No, that's me. That was us. Yeah, yeah no, he, but fortunately, he actually knew the people in the picture, and, and they were friends of his. So, I mean, the, the, but it's really interesting how many people come out of the woodwork claiming uh, that they're that they're it. That that picture also. Um, I wish we could be sharing it with your audience. Maybe we'll we show them. Talk. We'll show them the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was looking at the picture yesterday with somebody. We were in Elliot's apartment and the side of the car. So just for your audience, as we're listening, as they're listening, um, it's a it's a car window and there's a couple kissing inside the car. But you see them kissing reflected in the in the rearview mirror on the outside mirror. Uh, but the 
on the side of the car, the metal of the car has these sort of these stripes, just it was like metal and the way the light caught it. But then behind the couple in the ocean, the stripes of, of made by the waves are exactly the same pattern as the stripes along the side of the car. I'm getting goosebumps. I mean, mm. everybody looks at the couple kissing, but then you suddenly see, and he does this over and over again, this astounding juxtaposition where you go, he, there's no way he could have seen that. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, the picture was taken like that. And yet over and over and over again, you see these really fascinating uh, echoes of things in his pictures. And, and it's, did he know he, no. did he bring them out there to shoot that? Or did he just walk I, up I to a car I sitting there? I, I don't remember if it was a commercial job, and then I don't remember what it was. Hmm. Uh, I've but, seen uh, one photo from, maybe it's from his contact. A different sheet. angle. Yeah, a different angle from the back yeah, of the car. Yeah. And I'd never mm -hmm. seen any other pictures from that. And I, that surprised me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, why dogs? What is it with this guy and dogs? Like, because I have to say, so when I was 11 years old, uh, Son of Bitch came out, uh, which was one of his first dog books. It might have been one of his earliest books. And so I'm a kid, dogs, I'm loving it. And then maybe uh, two years later, I'm, I've just gotten to high school, was recent developments. So this is the one two punch. Uh, and I just fell in love with these books. But this guy's pictures of dogs blow away anything like people pick, take pictures of their pets all the time it's <laughs> next to nudes and maybe the eiffel tower it's right, maybe right. the most photographed subject right? right i rarely see pictures of dogs as amazing as he, what he's captured what did he have dogs did he grow up with like what is it um, with dogs he did have dogs but um he has a very funny quote which he says that uh, the thing that's nice about photographing dogs is they don't ask for prints yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, Ruben, you were at you were at EG the year he spoke, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I have a picture. I have my only picture of him is like at at EG when he was like flipping through books and he glared at me for a second. Yeah. What <laughs> so what what also really struck me is is Elliot also talks about the fact that he was painfully shy as a kid, which I didn't know. He doesn't, he, he, he when I, I knew him as an adult and he was always very outgoing and funny and, but what's the word he didn't, he wasn't a man of many words. Like he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't make small talk, uh, but when he, he spoke. Was stoic, laconic. <laughs> laconic. That's the right word. But, but, but what he did speak, you would fall over. Like he was on stage at this conference <laughs> that Ruben and I were at. And um, I sort of had to drag him kicking and screaming to the conference. What would I talk about? I just I just want to show my pictures. But then he would just show these pictures and he would always open his talk by saying, um, I have um, a profession and I have a hobby and they're both called photography. And I'm an, am <laughs> an amateur means uh, someone that loves something. And he said, I love taking pictures, but I also get paid for taking pictures. And it's mm -hmm. nice that they overlap. <laughs> Wow. Uh, and uh, as I said, you know, he always seemed to be amused that he actually got paid for doing something he loved so much. I mean, I, that's what I said to my kids. I hope I hope you discover something that makes you feel it. I love going to work every day. I love taking pictures. I love all the things I do. But I I realize how rare it is to love yeah. the thing that you do to make a living. A lot. You know, there's a lot of people that make a living to then do the thing they love. Right. Sure. It's, sure. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, most photographers that I know, um, well, I'm sure you, you both experienced this, but this idea of flow, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, sometimes I, I, I would leave, I, I'd go out to shoot for the day and I'd come at the end of the day and I, my bag, I have 18 rolls of film exposed. And if you asked me what I'd shot, I would go completely blank. Like yeah. I, I was in the moment and I had to actually think sometimes it wasn't until I looked at the pictures. I remember what I did. I, I was so present. That I wasn't yeah. thinking about what I'm going to do next or what I did. You're just in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. And that's, I mean, musicians talk about it. Athletes talk about it. Um, it's that sort of lack of self, oh, um, not awareness, but like lack of self-consciousness. Judgment. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're going. Yeah. So present. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I feel okay. the same way. Flow. It's like, it's one of the few things that gets me into that space. I just forget time. When I'm right. taking pictures exactly. or working or working on pictures, even not even just shooting, just falling into pictures. And oh, writing, at... writing's like that too, where you just, you know, you're just in the zone. It's like you've got, I like to go to Starbucks. I like the white noise. Um, sometimes <laughs> my, my, my wife says, you have an office. Why do you work at Starbucks? 
And yeah. I said, sometimes I just need the cacophony of in the I I can literally zone, it's like I tunnel down. Mm-hmm. And if it's too quiet, I get distracted. There's all this stuff. Oh, there's that bill I got to pay. Uh, it's actually yeah. better if I'm in a place that's not mine. But it's I, absolute silence doesn't work for me. Just yeah, to, no, um, there's there. I mean, there's actually a lot into for like brain studies and whether I've been listening to like Brain FM. This is not sponsored by Brain FM <laughs> at all, but you can actually change. Uh, it's kind of the background noise, and you can do all these different settings that kind of gives you, you know, from the white to brown to ambient to mu- more music um, that can help you focus or relax or you know do creative work, which I actually have found really really interesting. Because I'm I'm similar when it's too quiet, I'm like, what what's going on? Where should I look? Uh, oh, I forgot to do this or whatever. But when there is this other activity, this other energy going on, it somehow allows me to just like drill drill down and actually really concentrate on what I need to get done. Um yeah. so when you shoot, do you also, I mean I guess you're out in the world, um so you're you have that kind of background noise that allows you to 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 focus. And do you do you do studio work as well? Is this something that you would it be important to have I, kind of I've that energy? I, I've done studio work, but I like uh, I'm not I don't like to I, I prefer to be uh, the quiet observer. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of times people look at my picture and say there is no sense that you're even in this space. I mean, you took these pictures, but these people don't seem to. There's, I mean, how, why aren't they paying? T- I said I bore them to death. I mean, I I, <laughs> I I spend so much time around. I mean, you can only keep your photo face on for about ten minutes before you mm-hmm. just back into who you are. And I I when I say I bore, I don't bore. I'm just saying that a lot of times I just am there so persistently and in the background to the point where they just they just go back to what they're doing because after a while you revert back to the mean right you you just become yeah. who you are and isn't that how Irwit shot like didn't yeah. he he just sneak around just it's, it's not sneaky it's more just being there right i mean um a lot of times People simply, well there's, well, there's two kinds, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of photography. So one is where, you know, you see something, you take a picture and you kind of, you know, no one even knows you took it. And other time is you're just, you're there in the room, everybody knows you're there. And um, I remember once Time Magazine sent me to Atlanta. Be there like a chair. You just kind of yeah, disappear. Yes, yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. Okay, I'm going to use it in my mind. Be there I, like I, a chair? Be there like a chair. Yeah. Is that another one, Suzanne? I'm gonna start writing all these down for my tombstone. This is great. (laughs) Um, But I was I was photographing for Time Magazine, and there was a really a huge unemployment in Atlanta, and so they wanted me to go to this um, unemployment office. People are lined up outside, lined up, I guess, to get checks or to register, whatever. It was a little. I was a little nervous because I was probably the only um, sort of. I was like the only young person there. People were pretty old and people were pretty, it, it was a little frightening to walk in there. I, I'm, you know, I'm not explaining it very well, but it was just, it's one of these things where I didn't think walking in with my expensive cameras around my neck was probably the smartest thing in the world to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of homeless people. And um, I was pretty young and uh, someone said to me, if you're in a situation that you're finding a little bit frightening don't put your cameras under your coat and just walk in and just hang out, just like check out the scenes and, and look for the power person. I said, what do you mean? They said, if you, if you're in a room of people that are are with each other on a regular basis, someone in the room will be the the, the person everyone talks to. So I, I walked in this room. I, I was a little nervous. I hid my cameras under my coat. Um, and I just stood in the corner acting like I was one of the people there looking for, you know, for a handout or getting, you know, a check or whatever. And uh, I noticed everybody was walking over to this one man in line, talking to him and walking away. It was very obvious when I thought of what my friend had told me. So I went over and I introduced myself to him. I said, hi, uh, I, I, I'm I, my name is Rick Smolin. I'm working for Time magazine. I'm here to take pictures of um of you guys to try to explain, you know, how terrible the under, unemployment situation is in Atlanta and, uh, you know, try to take a picture of you and your friends. And, you know, usually when you say that, so I took a picture, but everyone in the room watched me doing this and then I could shoot the entire room and it was fine. Cause Fascinating. it was just, it was like one of those things where my friend had told me kind of vaguely what to do. But then when I was there, I realized what he was talking about. Cause you know, it, I wasn't going to stand on a soapbox and announce who I was, but I'd been yeah. anointed by this guy. So there were a lot, so much of being a photographer 
Someone said to me once, it's like 90% of it's talking your way past the palace guard and 10% is taking the picture. And uh, I love that <laughs> quote. That it's it is. It's about how do you get that permission and that access and people to feel comfortable. comfortable. I guess we're all tribal when it comes down to it. To be <laughs> in danger, right? I mean, because it yeah. is a little scary sometimes when you're you got a couple thousand dollars worth of cameras around your neck, you know. But to be a photojournalist, I've often felt that you need to be like to be good at it, and, and you tell me if this is right, but like Robert Frank, Erwitt, Cartier Prasant, like these guys kind of could sort of push their way into things. They just kind of they didn't take no, they just kind of did it. And it takes a sort of boldness and a little brashness to and quiet to, persistence. Yeah. Quiet per, yeah, you to pull your camera out is is almost aggressive. So you've got to get past the rope. You gotta get to if you if your job is to get back there, you get back there right you and those guys also, do that so your body language your expression where you put your eyes all of it has to say i deserve to be here like i'm yeah. I'm, I'm part i'm you know it's like the, if you show any sign of timidity or weakness or hesitation uh you're gonna not they're not gonna trust you that's yeah. gonna break the trust yeah right or you don't seem like you're, it's like trying to drive your car onto like the paramount lot in la Right, you can't stop at the gate and and ask if you can go in. You need to be like, "Hey, Joe, gotta be contempt for those guys. Don't stop me. I've got things to do. I do." Sort of like it's sort of like the lines that when there's a bouncer in front of the cool you know club and and you need to just walk in like you well, hey, how's it going? I'm not sure that totally works there, but okay. (laughs) Um, so so I I do want to know like if you had to put your finger on it like. What did you learn from Elliot Erwitt? Like you were closer to him than any of us, right? You got to see what he's like, grew up with his family. I what- mean, like, yeah, he, you're not only a fan, you're- Your family. Your family. Like what, is there I'm a- I'm here all day, folks. I'm here all day. <laughs> uh, like family's good. Family's good. That's, that's uh, yeah, I like that. You're a fan and your family. Very good. Okay. Um. Uh, I think, I mean, there's, there's, that you could take that question on so many levels, Ruben. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, his sense of humility and, uh, and again, gentle amusement is something I've always admired and, and loved him for. Um, uh, he was, I think, um, very happy that that what he did for a living gave him opportunities to meet so many interesting people and, and, and sort of intermingle with people you know sting love sting and his wife trudy lived below elliot in new york and they'd come up and, and hang out uh you know he he spent time with Marilyn monroe he was on the set of the misfits her last movie um mm-hmm. there's pictures of him with jfk in the office he hung out with shea guevara with uh, fidel castro um uh there's wow. all these amazing people and not in a not in a kind of you know there's there's people that kind of glom onto celebrities, you know, and they feed off of them. He was never name dropping. He never talked about his relationship with these people. They were friends. They were people he met. Uh, I think, uh, I think they respected him as as an artist uh, or as a somebody that helped tell their stories. Um, he has that famous picture of Nixon poking Khrushchev in the chest that Nixon actually stole and used during his election campaign without permission. Uh, Led Zeppelin used his photographs on the cover of one of their go. their albums. <laughs> it was uh, John Prine uh, put his picture in the back of T-shirts. Uh, even in, two years ago, Sting and Trudy asked if they could use his pictures on their wine. They have a vineyard in I think Italy, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so they used his pictures as on the wine label because they loved him and, and the pictures so much. Wow, uh, Ryan Reynolds. And uh, and um, uh, Blake Lively, Lively. Give, give each other one of Elliot's pictures on their anniversary every year. Wow, that's that's, that's a success, right? That's I know really... they were super fans. I'd heard you um, speak uh, at another event where they were they were super fans, and that they had kind of their work everywhere and like every screensaver and whatever. Yeah, but exactly. Right. I really love that. Yeah. That's yeah. part of their tradition. Yeah. Um, that's that's very very sweet. Well, and you, I mean, you were a super fan, obviously, when you were young with this first book that kind of changed your trajectory. Um, I want to ask you a question, which I, I, I've heard you mention, but I actually don't know the full story behind it. I don't know if you do. You sort of turned down an apprenticeship when you were a teenager. Uh, 
with Elliot Erwitt. Can you why A, would can you, you do, why would you do that? Father, totally how your father about even that. did this, if you know more yeah. of the story and more about why you turned this down? So after, I totally forgot, that's right. Um, after my dad gave me the book of Elliot's and I could, you know, basically I was driving my family crazy because Elliot this, Elliot that, look at this picture. I love this. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, uh, when I was 16, my father, when I came home, sitting at dinner and he said, so uh, I got your job for the summer. I was one of these kids. I did not want my father's help. I was really proud. And I, I just, I don't know why I just didn't want his help. I wanted to do everything on my own. And so it was like, what do you mean you got me a job? What kind of job? I was like immediately hostile and suspicious. And he said, well, you know, that photographer, Elliot Irwitt, you're talking about him all the time. I, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, actually knows him. And so I contacted him and wow. told him how much you love his work. And I got you a job to be his assistant for the summer. And I said, no. He says, what do you mean, no. I Why said, would you say no? I don't understand. I, and I said to my father, he said, well, my father was furious. He said, what are you talking about? All you've done is talk about this guy, and I just got you a job. This is like the dream thing. What are you talking about? And I said, yeah. I don't want to meet some kid sweeping the floor and getting coffee. I don't want to meet him till I'm really a photographer. He goes, okay, first of all, you're never going to be a photographer. You're going to be a lawyer, <laughs> a doctor, earn a living. And he said, you know, you are you have a D minus average. You never finish anything. You're totally distracted. You know, uh, 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 you know, basically, you're a loser. Thank you, Dad. Um, oh, God. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm not going to send you to college to do baby portraits and wedding pictures. You're going to be whatever <laughs> real profession. And he, and I said, no, I, I just want to be a photographer. And he goes, okay, do you understand? And like, tell me, what is, what does being a photographer mean? I said, you know, National Geographic, life. He said, you know, you're so unrealistic. It's like, do you realize and to, to work for life or National Geographic, you're going to, do baby portraits. Then you're going to work for some little newspaper. Maybe when you're 50 years old, life <laughs> might publish a picture if you're really good. And, uh, you, you know, you have to work your way up through the whole, through the ranks, right? So uh, I didn't take the job, by the way. He was absolutely furious. Uh, I'm I furious would, just hearing this. <laughs> my God. I would have met my wife when she was six. Yeah, but that's probably a good thing. It's honestly a good thing. Yeah, I would have thought it was a little brat running around the office because apparently, <laughs> if you work for Elliot, you sort of get you know adopted into the whole family. Um, so uh, when I uh, I did the you know I did the yearbook in high school and in the newspaper in college and all the in the yearbook, and so I I, I finally uh, got I, I kept calling Magnum trying to get a meeting to go show Elliot my work. I finally got an appointment and I went to New York. I was so excited and. I had a box of prints and my yearbook and I, and I, they take me to a little room at Magnum and, and I'm like trying to breathe, you know, and, uh, and, he shows up and yeah. And so uh, he said, what do you got? So I handed him this box of code, you know, yellow box of Kodak, you know, paper and, and he opens up and he, you know, starts looking at the pictures. It doesn't say a word. It just about 15 pictures. And he goes, that's amusing. Well, thank you for coming. I mean, I literally, he literally said four words to me and I was like, uh, and he left. And, was, <laughs> and, then I, and I, my friend said, what happened? How was the meeting? What did he say? Do you like your work? I said, uh, he found one of my pictures amusing, I guess. Um, and that was it. And then, um, and then when I decided when I, years later, when I was working for National Geographic and living in Australia, um, I heard he was coming. I, I had this idea of doing a day in life of Australia. I was going to bring a hundred photographers to Australia. And I heard that Elliot was coming to give a speech at a local university in Melbourne. And so I, the night before he came, I spent all night writing a letter, which was going to the model to invite all the other hundred photographers. But he was the first one I invited. So at, a, at the end of his lecture, I walked up and I said, you probably don't remember. We met at Magnum a few years ago. And he said, "Oh, you know, nice to see you again." Um, and uh, no, obviously not remembering any me me at all. And then I I said, "I um, I'm doing this project where I'm bringing photographers from 30 countries to Australia to do a day in life of the country." And here's a letter. Could you you know I would love if you would come. And he goes, "Thank you," and then, and never heard a word back. Nothing. No answer. Nothing. <laughs> Jesus. Um, and and uh, <laughs> um. So two years later, I'm sorry, this is a long, boring story. Two years later, when the, when the book came out, um, uh, Hiroji Kubota, one of the Japanese photographers, a wonderful magnet photographer, had an exhibit in New York, and it was my birthday. 
and I was feeling sorry for myself and I was just going to sit at home and do something, watch TV, something by myself. And uh, one of my friends called and said, are you coming to the exhibit tonight? And I said, no. And they said, you know, Hiroji knows you're in town and it's really rude if you don't show up. I mean, he did a really good job for you on the Australia book and you should really just like, you should just come. So I went and, and there was Elliot in the corner uh, with this really gorgeous young girl. And I thought, girlfriend, wife, you can never tell with photographers. Yeah. And four, <laughs> with four wives, photographers with four wives. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Some of them younger than my wife. Uh, now. Um, so I went over to introduce myself to him again now for the third time. And again, he was like, nice to see you. And then, I, so I started talking to his daughter and I went home that night and said, I met the woman I'm going to marry. And uh -oh. those, those words had never come out of my mouth. I'd had lots uh -oh. of words that lasted a week and then I got an assignment and I would leave and never come back. Um, so it's so kind that, of coincidence that she was his daughter. Like, it sounds was, like you just met her there and- She was visiting from California for the weekend. She lived in in uh, uh, North, in Marin, in North of San Francisco. So I had to oh, start really? making- I had to start making excuses to go to Marin. <laughs> More so, projects. Yeah. yeah. And now, wow. and now we've, we've been partners both in marriage and also our books. We've done all these uh, we co-authors on the books and she's the most organized human being in human. I'm, I'm, people think I'm super organized. I am not at all. I'm, I'm still Mr. ADD and she's like the spreadsheets, the budgets, everything on time, lined up, organized, you know, hurting the cats. So yes, you're the cat. <laughs> I have these crazy ideas, and then she helps. Not help. She's the one that makes it all sort of, you know, all the pieces fit together. So, so, so the last book, or Elliot's last book, because um, I mean, it is amazing trying to think of '95, you know, passing away at '95, and so this his last book, um, found not lost, uh, and kind of he almost memorialized himself in a way by going. Uh, going through all of this work, were you two sort of helping him um, create that final book then? Um, he did it with a gentleman named Stuart Smith, who had designed a lot of his earlier books. And Stuart now uh, has his own publishing company called Gost. Okay. Uh, and um, so Stuart actually went through all the contact sheets um, with Elliot, and the two of them figured out um, the juxtaposition, the images, um, one of the roles that I played in the book is I got I got Sting and Blake Lively and, and uh, all these curators to write blurbs for the back of the book before mm -hmm. it came out uh, and sort of tapped into all their you know reputations, you know, because anything you can do to make your book stand out from the noise helps a lot. So there's some really noted people. Uh, Bill Hunt uh, wrote it back. Uh, uh, um, uh, it was just really interesting finding people that admired uh, Elliot, who were both in the photography business and people that were collectors of his work, just talking about what an impact uh, he had made and his, his work had made on them. Over the Was years. there anything that surprised you? Uh, anything that anyone had written that sort of stuck with you? Um, I think I think it all dovetailed all the things I heard people say for years. It was just nice yeah. for them to lend their names to it. One of the things I wanted to mention is that um, there was an extraordinary exhibit of his work in, in Paris for the for six months last year. 150,000 people went to this exhibit. Wow. People lined up an hour before the museum opened in the morning. The uh, King the, Tut. The gift shop <laughs> sold out every day of tote bags and postcards and, and books. Um, and now it's in Lyon. Um, mm -hmm. It's moving to Brussels. And... Uh, uh, people said the, the I spoke to the people at the museum and I said, so is this a typical turnout for your exhibits? And they said, we've never had anything like this. They said, wow. um, people come and then come back the next day with their entire family. And I said, what do you think the appeal is? I mean, obviously I, I thought I knew, but they said it makes people feel good in the world that we live in right now. People come in, they walk out with a smile on their face as opposed to the news and the podcasts and the horror and the newspapers that there's something about his view of people that gives you a sense of hope, whimsy, uh, amusement, something you can't wait to share. And what, yeah. what, I, what I loved in the museum is everybody's taking pictures of his pictures <laughs> to then share with their friends. Um, oh, he also, Elliot spent some time photographing in a nudist colony. Mm -hmm. love, I love his stuff in nudist <laughs> colonies. Oh my God. <laughs> And I had two questions for him. One is, were people okay with you taking pictures of them naked? And he said they were fine. And the second was, was he wearing clothes? 
<laughs> and he said, when in Rome, <laughs> that, that was his response. <laughs> oh, so, my. So, no, but to, to, to tie the end of that story. So there's some hysterical pictures taken by a photographer named Richard Calvar. They had a nudist day at the museum in Paris. So there was they shut the museum and the whole museum was full of people naked looking at his pictures. And the pictures are so funny because these are people that you wish weren't naked, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't the Playboy bunnies and the bathing suit issue of uh, Sports Illustrated. It's Elliot Irwin. <laughs> they kept their clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i would love again, to see pictures of people looking at the pictures of the new it's of, like of the, the picture of the artist yes the, the models like spencer tunic or, or spencer tunic yes, does these like massive I, like everyone's naked yeah. all together but i always wonder so i was in amsterdam when spencer tunic did uh did a shoot um with are you, nick are and you in the picture see naked I'm not. No, I wasn't oh, able to go. And I was like, I, I still regret it to this day. But um, but you did see like naked people riding their bikes to get there because I always wonder about the logistics. So for this Paris day, did they just get there naked or did they check I think their they, clothes? They, I th they took their clothes off there apparently. Oh, um, okay. I, I photographed I sp I photo photographed Spencer doing uh, uh, one of his huge uh, uh, nudes at Burning Man one year. With insane because yeah, seen that picture. In the, yeah. The dust and it's like it was it was an amazing scene. It was a dawn at Burning Man. It was wow. It, that was one of the most amazing uh memories. Incredible. Uh, there was something wow. else I was gonna say about his exhibit. But, oh oh, so just the way that the nudists in his exhibit looking at the pictures of the nudists is such an <laughs> Elliot sort of meta. Um when Elliot passed away. The guy that wrote his, the New York Times did an entire back page of his uh, uh, obituary, and at the bottom, so he died on November 29th, and the uh, the person who wrote the obituary it says so and so died on April 29th. <laughs> you know, wait a second, the guy that wrote the obituary died six months before Elliot died, and. It, you know, they have at the New York Times, they have something called the morgue where they pre write stories about famous mm -hmm. people. So when you know that, it sort of makes sense, but it's such an Elliot twist that the writer totally. obituary died months before he died. Um, <laughs> kind of like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Um, Fantastic. Is that show coming to the US? Do you know? Uh, I'm working on it because it should. It's, it it's, should. It really should. Oh, so yeah. good. It was so good. And it, I knew his work obviously pretty well, but it was room after it, it went on forever. I mean, it, it was like you you could spend three hours there. There was a color room, there was a dog room, there was a nudist room, there a was dog a, room, there was yeah. a sequence room. You know, we he has one of my favorites of his pictures is um, there's this older couple sitting on two of these sort of um, you know those chairs that they have like a, a cloth uh, like divan sort of it's like a beach chair. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So. Um, this is so so Elliot. So he it was just two people laying on beach chairs and, and like they're they're like this and he's here and the beach is behind them. And then they obviously got up and left, but the the wind blew the the bottom of the chair up. And so the picture on the left is of sitting there and the other one is of the chairs blown up. But the the mental picture is they just got launched. Yeah. You know? just, <laughs> sorry, it just but some of his pictures are like that because the point is he stayed there until after they left. Yeah. Right. And I mean, God knows how long they were sitting there or if he just waited, waited, waited. A lot of times he would, I'd ask him about this. He said, sometimes you come across a situation where you just, you like the framing, you like what's going on and you just stay there and you just spend an hour. Just, you don't move, you sit there and you let people come in and out of the frame and then wait to make it great. Suzanne, Suzanne has a saying, wait to make it great. It's so oh, like perfect. It. Yeah. It's yeah exactly Suzanne, you, you got to be writing these down. She you is pithy as hell. Oh my God. I've got a book of her, her little aphorisms. Yeah. <laughs> wait, Fantastic. Wait that isn't, that. Those two pictures are on the cover of one of his books. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I think that was it could uh, be recent developments. Maybe. I think it was no. recent developments. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, wow. When, one thing I know when you were on the show before, we asked you about your work. Um, I think the thing when I sort of, you know, when we, we've talked a lot about Elliot's work and sort of how he really saw it all from, you know, glamour, power, fame, beauty, irony, humor. Um, 
I would love you if you could, what would you describe in one word uh, or how would you describe in one word uh, Elliot's work? Um, you know how there are people uh, like there's uh, you, you, people sometimes have the name of their, like Dr. Blood, you know, like how did, did that influence you deciding to become a doctor? Yes, what you became. Blood? Exactly. <laughs> I had so, Christopher Lightfoot that I went to high school with, and he was so fast. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm sure if we actually thought about this for a minute or asked your uh, viewers, we'd get a hundred examples of people whose last names are so appropriate for what they do. So, Erwitt yeah. Wit is in like his, that. And, and his pictures, as opposed to funny, I'd say his pictures are witty. Yeah. Or wry. Yeah. Right. It's like, so, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's sort of, you know, if you if you were writing this, you'd say that's too on the nose, you know. <laughs> right. Can you, yeah. you can't call the character that. That would be so obvious, you know. But even to lean in a little bit more, it's like it's like that. It's um it's like this the the comedic sort of delivery, like you have to wait for it. It's not like in your face humor, it's right. wit. You know, it's like what you described at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, there, you have to look a, a little longer. Exactly. Well, just as a reminder to everyone listening to, we do have a phenomenal episode with Rick um, to go back and listen to. And you had described your own work as, you know, empathetic, as kind of the one word to describe, which I think is truly beautiful. Um, you've got such great stories and such great work of your own. I mean, this is a little bit like... Uh, talking to uh let me see dakota johnson and then like you know not being and and really only talking about uh melanie griffith or something like that like this is sort of like we get to you are such a talent um in your own right and with so many great stories so i just hope everyone checks out your work uh in fact you uh congratulations you were actually selected as the presenter for next week's um exposure international photography festival in dubai um that's exciting yeah. a little bit more about you is there anything uh, anywhere else that people can find your work um and maybe speaking opportunities or other things that you, that you're putting out in the world or that you have coming up um well the most recent book that my wife Jennifer and I did was called the uh, the good fight and it was a look at at the incredibly inspiring um struggles of uh people of all different backgrounds of you know whether you're black or jewish or gay or female or disabled mm -hmm. latino american native american over the last hundred years through the eyes of photographers. And it sounds like something that could have been really depressing, but it's actually really inspiring when you realize how much progress this country has made towards certain justice for all. Uh, and, and obviously what's at risk right now. Um, that's not my work. I have a few pictures in it, but I, it, I'm more the curator of that as well as the publisher with Jennifer. Um, uh, the book when when tracks came out about Robin Davidson's camel trip, um, I did a book called Inside Tracks with Robin. Um, mm -hmm. It's really fun to do, and it's smartphone enabled, so you can point. The last three books I've done, I'm a I'm a tech junkie. In fact, I ordered the Apple uh, Vision Pro, which I get on Sunday. Get on wife, front okay, we'll have Jennifer, to talk more about that. <laughs> Jennifer's gonna kill me. She said you spent what on these goggles, ski goggles. <laughs> I, I, there's a lot of really critical reviews coming out right now saying it's really wondrous, but it weighs too much. And it's definitely a first generation, you know, product. You know, better um, than to get the first generation of stuff. I know, like, but I know I'm, this, you know, I'm just, to wait. I'm a, I'm a, a fanboy for uh, Apple. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but where was I going with this? Um, oh, um, I'm doing something completely different than anything I've ever done before right now. I'm working with uh, Guillermo del Toro's partner, Miles Dale, on a uh, a multi-season TV series, fictional, based on a book called Rob, uh, called um, uh, Tunnel in the Sky by Robert Heinlein. It was my favorite book since I was a child. And it's a group of teenagers on their graduation exercise before they get to colonize new planets. And something goes wrong and they never get picked up. It's like Lost Meets um, uh, 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 Lord of the Flies, but it's actually yeah. not. <laughs> um, wow. That sounds that cool. Sounds fascinating. Very different. Congratulations. So also, I, know not, I, mean, I know nothing about this world at all, except, uh, I mean, I, I wrote the treatment for the series and um, I'm a fish out of water. I'm working with experts. Um, we just uh, engaged a great showrunner uh, slash writer named Andrew Shambliss, who did Fear the Living Dead. A mm -hmm. wonderful guy um and so we're hoping 
maybe in a year and a half to two years, we'll have the pilot episode out. And uh, it's really fun working on it and learning about something completely different out of my wheelhouse completely. So awesome. I think it's, to be uh, an amateur and a professional, right? To right, get exactly, to yeah. <laughs> the things that you love doing, it's a great overlap yeah. of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, Rick, thank you so much. I know it's time we need we need to wrap it up. Uh, our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco and Santa Fe. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever service you're listening to us on now. Leave reviews and ratings, especially if you like us. Uh, we get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. So if you know someone who might get something from us, send them a link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music. Rick Smolin for being here to talk about Elliot. So nice to have you here again. And all of you for hanging out with us today. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time.